Welcome to A Reason for Hope. So glad you're here. We're going to be taking your Bible questions, and uh, this is a daily Bible answer program. You can catch us on Facebook. Just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and we also live stream this to YouTube. You can search for A Reason for Hope. Uh, you can also send in your questions. Uh, the email address is <clears throat> questionsforhope at gmail.com, and that's questions for hope, all spelled out with letters, no numbers. And uh, you can also watch the live stream on our website, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, or Calvary Fellowship, uh, calvarychristianfellowship.com. And you go to the tab that says Watch Live. You can actually watch live and uh, actually chat and leave questions. It's pretty awesome. And we also have an app. Download our app. You search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in the App Store, whether you're on an iPhone or an Apple products or whether you're on also Android. So it's also in the Google Play Store. You can watch us on Apple, uh, Apple TV as well as Roku. So plenty of places to watch. But if you want to get involved and actually ask questions, go to where we live stream where you can leave a question, and that would be Facebook, YouTube, or the website. And, of course, if you want to email us, we'll get to your questions later on in the week, but that'd be great. Uh, In studio with me today is Bo Olette. Hey, how's it going? Back. Being here today. Back in it, man. Excited to be with you, Adrian. I'm excited to... uh, happened to your mind i mean i remember going back in in radio with you like you know i don't know 25 years ago decades (laughs) yeah it's been a while so i always enjoy me and you being on the show awesome it's great yeah i remember having to drive down like to the old studio yeah yeah down south those were the days and then of course our uh in-house expert and all-around great guy as the elder likes to say uh, Pastor Sean Richards, how are you today? All around good guy, right yeah, I've here. I've been promoted from good to great, so things are going great. <laughs> There's only one that's great, bro. <laughs> yeah, good. yeah uh, had a fun week. Uh, those of you who are familiar with my interactions with my ancestors and the beliefs of Norse paganism, I had an interaction with one who accidentally proved Christianity's truth and didn't even know it. Obviously, internet trolling and such. He said that, uh, I hope your God comes back so we could nail him back to the cross. And I went, oh, well, it's great. I'm glad you acknowledged that he was crucified and that he's not <laughs> on it anymore. So the death and resurrection, thank you for affirming my religion by accident. Would you like well to done. address your religion on purpose? So we'll see if he follows Touché. up or if I make another video. Wow, that's great. <laughs> well, we, we hope you're joining us live, and we hope that you have a chance to type in your questions Um uh, sometimes people ask questions that are a little bit sensitive, so we can understand that. And if you decide you want to email your question, may not get it uh, that day, but we'll definitely we, we we catalog every question that comes in, and we eventually will get to it. So uh, we understand that. But uh, before we get started with today's question time, um, why don't we ask the Father of Answers, the God of Truth, to be here <laughs> with us? <laughs> yeah, that's all. I didn't know where you were going with that when you started. <laughs> the sentence. I was like, okay. I never know when I start a sentence where I'm going either. (laughs) Improvisation, Um, as Michael Scott said. Yes. And by the way, I do want to let everybody know out there that if they're interested in in getting into Sean's brain a little bit, they can um, go to his website. I mean, he does have a YouTube page called um, The Foil Guy. 
That's for and the artwork. Shadio Ministries. There's the Foil Guy, which is a great website. Yeah. And then there's Shadio <laughs> Ministries. Yes. Not a lot of Bible stay happening there. Just, just yeah. sculptures. Yeah. yeah, but it's cool. It's good stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, Shady Oak Ministries. Yeah, so those are... On YouTube. Yeah, those are YouTube channels. Yeah. Not a website, but that's okay. Yeah, for yeah, For being yeah. precise, but... Uh, it's um, cool, man. He's got a lot of apologetic yeah. stuff up there. And he's starting a new... Can I... Can I tell what well, you're doing he's doing a, a really cool series he's doing a tribute to norm mcdonald doing uh kind of a almost an impersonation of his snl uh newscaster comedy bits but mainly revolving around religious or moral uh cultural issues and he's got it down pretty good and i'd encourage you to go to shitty oak ministries youtube channel and uh You've posted some there now, right? Yeah, the third episode will be live on Monday. So I would encourage you to check it out. It's actually pretty funny <laughs> and informative, if, especially if you goal. were uh, if you ever were a Norm Macdonald fan, especially. But without further ado, why don't we start off with some prayer? Yeah, yeah, I can pray. Let's do it, Father. We thank you so much for the the show, the opportunity that we have to be on. We pray that you prepare hearts and speak to people. Use us, uh, Father. May your word go forth. Your word is amazing. It's a uh, lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, and we are blessed, you say, to take hold of your word, and we want to do that today. So uh, bless our time, Lord. Speak to people. Touch their hearts. We pray. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. All right, so where do we begin? Well, um, let's see what we chimed in here. I uh, unfortunately lost my, I had all the pages and everything up, and so I wasn't able to. Um, we got you covered. Um, yeah, I know you did. And Sean's got you. I'm the only one without a laptop. I feel totally, totally disarmed. Easy. Yes. <laughs> oh, uh, this is a question from David. We got this on Monday. Uh, he wants to know, was Absalom justified in killing his brother Ammon. Oh, that's a good and, one. And uh, maybe another way to look at it, would he have been justified had he killed Ammon right away rather than waiting in revenge for the kill? Based mm. on what Ammon did to Tamar, it seems killing is justified, and King David made a mistake in not ordering the execution of Ammon. Thank you. Well, thank you, David. And your, I guess, third caveat answers most of your question. Absalom's involvement in Ammon's death was the wrong way of going about everything. If David had ordered the rightful execution or even the punishment of his son, according to the Mosaic law, but I repeat myself, would have been death, then the situation with Ammon would have been stewing in bitterness and, of course, resulting in not just uh, the death of Ammon, but the attempted murder of David himself. But when we're talking about the incident with Tamar, obviously, Ammon was a scumbag. There's no <laughs> excusing or uh, jumping around that issue. But as far as this, uh, I guess, violent streak on Absalom's part, this had started, as far as this tendency in his family, a long time before Ammon was even born, did it not? Yeah, and let's just, like, for those that don't know what we're talking about, because they're like, what, what's, what's, who's Ammon, who's Tamar, what's going on? Let's just back up a little bit and just go, we're talking about um, a family here. King David had a family. He had a lot of wives, so he had a lot of sons, and he had daughters. 
And so if you opened up your Bible to the book of 2 Samuel, that's where Saul, that's where Sean's at right now is 2 Samuel. And the narrative of Ammon and Tamar is in chapter 13. And this is a, a, a horrendous narrative. Um, um, for those that aren't familiar with the narratives of the Old Testament, um, you know, this is one of those ones where if you started off here, it would be kind of a rough, rough section for you. But here you have half uh, siblings, if you will. They have different moms. And one of the sons of David ends up raping one of David's daughters. And that's the narrative of Amnon and Tamar. So it'd be like a half-sister, essentially. Yes, which makes right. it so much better. And Right, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which like, is, what? no, no <laughs> it doesn't make it any better. But, but that's <clears throat> the narrative that Sean's talking about. And then Absalom, who is another um, offspring of another wife of David, um, is super mad. And and so Tamar being his sister and all. Yes, full Tamar sister. is his full sister. So mm. this thing festers in this family for quite some time. So a brother from another mother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Violates his sister. Right. And, and he's unhappy about it. Well, and even more so, David yeah. does nothing about it. For two years, if I remember the narrative, it's like a two year you know, something like that. It's a long time. That Knowingly goes, doesn't do anything about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, he just doesn't do anything about it. So Absalom takes justice into his own hands, and he ends up killing Amnon. Mm. And yeah. in a real underhanded way as well, he offers him an opportunity and just saying, hey, I've got some uh, stuff for you to check out. Right. And he, jump, or he doesn't jump him. He has guys come over and jump him. Right. And... um so yeah, he sets him up. He sets up his half brother, gets him killed, and and uh, things are never the same. <laughs> Especially between him and David, between because then David dad. has to be informed that one of his oldest and most prominent sons is not only established kind of a Hunter Biden relationship with the country, but also within the family. Then you compound on that. Now Absalom's a murderer. What do I <laughs> you have to do with all this? Yeah. And what's sad about all this is, again, this trend was set a long time before any of this had happened. Mm. The instant, if you are familiar with this, with Bathsheba, was not only something that David did, and it was a violent act, it was an immoral act, and one that he hid for over a year. When he came clean on it, he had done things that were deserving of death. God had mercy on him, but the prophet Nathan said something interesting. He said, the sword will not depart from your home. Mm. And this was a prophecy on the part of Nathan and saying that this trend is going to carry over. Now, people get nervous about this sort of thing and say, oh, so if you know my kids do something weird, my entire family's cursed, or my dad does something weird, is this a generational curse going through the line of David? And the answer is simply no. When we're talking about this situation, David was specifically addressed in this way from God because... As a result of his poor decisions, not only with physical relationships, but dealing with his sin in a proper way, you see this trend continue in his life. He delays coming to the terms, not just with his own sin, but with the sins of his family. He lets Ammon and Absalom, by extension, stew in their filth for a while, 
until the stink so high the stain settled in, if you don't mind the graphic image. Also noting as well, when it notes to sexual issues, you could imagine from David's perspective, who am I in this situation to correct my son about this when you look at what I've done? And it, of course, compounded into this situation that we see now where Absalom ultimately ended up trying to overthrow his father's government. Now, obviously, if he had followed the Mosaic Law, you can read this in Leviticus chapter 20, they are told, anyone, doesn't matter if you're a prince, doesn't matter if you're a peasant, if you commit this act, if you lay with a woman against her will, she cries out in the city, he's to be put to death. If it's, um, what was it, uh, not statutory rape, it would be uh, just fornication is the word I was looking Mm. for. Uh, They're not married yet, but they lie together. Obviously, Tamar had some moral fiber, and when Amnon did this to her. She said, don't abandon me now, otherwise you're going to be doing something much worse. She was willing to commit to marry him. Yeah. And even before the deed was going to be done to her, she said, no, just ask your dad. We can marry each other. Just don't do this great evil to yeah. me. The point being made, though, is this. When it comes to obeying the law, that was the whole crux of the situation. David's neglect of the law is what led to this horrible scenario. But David, as the head of state, as the representative of God, it would have been the best-case scenario if David himself had dealt with Ammon then and there. Yeah, Absalom and I, would have had nothing to do yeah, with Yeah, and it. I think the law, I think the law, um, you know, in obeying the law, um, like David would have took Amnon before the judges, mm-hmm. you know, of Israel, and that would have been the right thing to do. Yeah. And, um, you know, in a sense, take him to the court, you know, and uh, let the court decide the matter. Uh, you know, hear hear what happened and what's going on. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of horrible sexual things that people have done, and they didn't get killed. They didn't die. You know, there's a lot of mercy. I'm just saying that in the Old Testament, tons of mercy. You know, so it's not that it's not that for sure Amnon would have been put to death, but definitely David. You know, that would have been the right thing to do. Yeah, Amnon would not have been the arbiter in this situation, the right. rightful one at least. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. Interesting. Let us know if that helps, David. Good, yeah, good. Yeah. Good do, do, is it was it right for uh, Absalom to go after him, you know, and and hunt him down, you know, like you say? Uh, no, it would have been better for David to step in and and just follow the law. Use the law of the land. Use the use the, the judicial system of the time. Yeah, the judicial. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> it's understandable that he would <clears throat> want to behave that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, any of us with siblings, male or female, yeah, uh, who's been injured in that way could definitely have good reason to cause harm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but when you're noting the situation, the classic two wrongs don't make a right, right yeah. you got already a <laughs> scumbag par excellence, a rapist mm-hmm. and an incestuous one at that, and then you've got a murderer, a murderer on top who's that, then yeah. going to commit high treason on top mm-hmm. of that. On top of that, it's just a horrible situation. But it was prophesied by Nathan <clears throat> as a result of David's prior sin. Yeah. It reminds me of that film, uh, A Time to Kill. Do you remember that film? Mm. Really interesting, kind of one of those moral dilemmas. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson plays a father, and his daughter is brutally uh, raped within an inch of her life. She lives... And uh, when he realizes that the judicial system is probably not going to mitigate justice, yeah, he hides in a closet at the courthouse and guns them down. 
Yeah. And so the whole program is, uh, should he be tried for murder? Yeah. Or, or he is being tried for murder. Should he be um, Shown judged? Shown leniency as a result yeah, exactly. of the motivation or not. And the yeah. answer, of course, is no. Yeah. yeah. And but, it's always uh, good, too, whoever asks the question, you know, is just remember the New Testament. You know, I think of uh, the book of Romans that talks about, you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And, um, you know, that, uh, you know, we, we are to bring judgment always before the Lord, just like they were supposed to in the Old Testament. So they were supposed to bring people before the tabernacle that was called the tent of meeting. And it, because it was a place where they were supposed to meet with God. Yep. And, and, and in, and in a sense, the new Testament, we have that same, um, instruction, um, you know, Jesus, when he was crucified in the book of Peter, it says that when he was insulted, he did not insult in mm-hmm. return, chapter 2, 1 Peter, right? But he committed judgment into the hands of the Father. And so what he did is Jesus brought people, uh, all of us, if you will, before the Father. I mean, pretty amazing, right? Um, so instead of judging those people who insulted him and put the crown of mm-hmm. thorns on his head, and <clears throat> lashed him, and all those things. Jesus could say, "Father, forgive them." Mm. You know, he he literally put gave all judgment, all vengeance, all you know everything of any kind of um, yeah judgment over to the hands of the Father. Mm-hmm. So so that's what we got to do always. I think the Old Testament and the New Testament are saying the same things, and yeah. I just want them you know whoever asked to be clear on that matter right yeah romans is very explicit not to return evil for evil but return evil with good and then prefaces it with a quote from the old testament vengeance is mine Mm -hmm. i will repay says the lord that's right and that was uh what was the old testament Mm -hmm. what was the name of the psalmist who wrote psalm 73 asaph Asaph, thank you yeah he said that's my only hope because there is no justice in this life ultimately even paul tells the the corinthian christians why are you suing each other why are you going to uh the secular world for justice can't you why not rather be wronged yeah it's an amazing passage why not rather be wrong mm. Ooh, that's one that's tough for to mm-hmm. swallow but anyway consistency throughout the bible mm-hmm. i think it's always beautiful to mm. see that and uh so we don't fall into a fallacy where we just start going like oh yeah. the the new old testament's obsolete <laughs> yeah and, and speaking like of old versus new <laughs> testament uh it's very important for us to remember that there isn't a god of the old testament and a god of the new testament he's right. one and the same yeah. but uh Wyatt wants to know specifically speaking about demon possession oh boy he asks uh, was <laughs> we'll adam let, and eve we'll let Sean answer this one <laughs> was adam and eve demon possessed and why isn't casting out demons done until the time of Jesus? And why do deliverance ministries fixate on this if it wasn't done in the Old Testament? In other words, we don't see a whole lot of demon possession in the Old Testament. And we see a little bit in the New Testament. Why do these deliverance ministries ministries fixate on that? And he, he, he Wyatt adds, was Saul demon-possessed? And if Adam and Eve were falling into sin through the serpent, 
was that a, a, a way of communicating to the audience that they were possessed? Uh, mm. So that's the, I guess that's the question. Yeah, why you mentioned deliverance ministries and they're, for those listening, the kind of ministries that are always asking, you know, demon, demon, who's got the demon? You've got the demon of lust, the demon of greed, the demon of lying, the demon of anything that you would have difficulty with in your relationship with God. They don't attribute to what the Bible calls your flesh, they refer to it as only and ever the demonic impacting you. Now, in order to get around some statements that we'll go into in a moment, they'll wiggle around, as the nature of false doctrine, the plain statements of Scripture by saying, oh, no, no, they're not demon-possessed, they're demon-oppressed. They have the influence of the enemy in their life dictating their behavior. Well, you gave the example of Adam and Eve, so let's just look at the text and ask, what role did the enemy play in it? And it was in any way appropriate to say that there was a marionette system going on here, or if Eve was the one who consciously made the decisions. This is Genesis 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent, the word in Hebrew is Nahash, it means shining one, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it. He didn't say this, but she said, Nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Notice he's not uh, putting hooks in her skin or uh, entering into her mind. He's speaking. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this is where we expect the uh, nouns and pronouns to be changed from she to he and through her rather than uh, the woman. Uh, she wasn't named Eve yet at this time as a quick side note. She was called Isha, which means woman in Hebrew. It says in verse 6, so when the, pay careful attention, Wyatt, woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. I'm holding up three fingers for those listening on Reach Radio with intent. Uh, turn to 1 John chapter 2 if you want to skip ahead. But it notes this, and it says, She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the consequences follow, and the rest is, as they say, history. When we look at this passage, you have to commit a fallacy which is called eisegesis to read into the text assumptions rather than out of the text conclusions. That's not how ideas are formed. That's not how you would read anything in a rational sense. We know that in this day and age of fake news and the propaganda that's regularly thrown in our faces, that people are going to come to a text with assumptions regardless of what information is being said. You know, I hate this person. You hear any news story about that person, you're going to read it in a negative light. Well, if your assumption about the supernatural is mankind can't do anything sinful unless a demon is possessing or oppressing them, they would say that, okay, well, that's obviously the case here because Eve couldn't have sinned unless she was possessed. Not so fast because noting that in the passage itself, what is the plain statements that are made throughout the section? She saw. She desired. She took the fruit. No mention of the serpent in any way apart from speaking to her. And we would fully acknowledge that demons, or adversaries literally, can introduce false doctrine, false ideas, but they don't dictate our behavior. In the gospel, or not the gospel, the epistle of 
1 John chapter 2, verses 11 and onwards, it goes on to note, Do not love the world nor the things in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, good for food, the lust of the eyes, it was pleasant to the eyes, and the pride of life, the desire to make one wise. We're all at work and still are all at work in any area of sin that we would fall into. When these things are acknowledged, then we need to say, what is their source? Well, we can work in you know, the Sherlock Holmes method of alternatives. Can it be us or can it be the demonic? Well, it can't be the demonic. We need to remove the absurd. Therefore, whatever's left has to be rational. In the same book, by the way, 1 John chapter 4, where it notes that greater is he who is in you, that is those who belong to God, than he who is in the world. Noting the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believer, noting the presence of the Holy Spirit at this time in Eve's existence before the fall, she had fellowship with God on the regular, we can still sin, but we can't be possessed because it is impossible for light to coexist with darkness. You can't be possessed and at the same time be literally indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So that's a working out of an impossibility. What else could it be? Well, I could note in the book of Romans, chapter 7, where Paul the Apostle uses an interesting word. He says, I know that is within me, that is the demon, this uh, entity that I've given and identified by its name, and as a result, I'm now able to live a righteous life. No, that is my flesh. Mm -hmm. Nothing good dwells. So he identifies himself as the issue. He says, oh, wretched man that the enemy is? No, that I am. Who is able to deliver me from this body of death? We need to be aware of these very small assumptions that are made before reading the Bible because it's, and I again say this without uh, blinking an eye consciously, promoting false doctrine. When we make the emphasis of Scripture that you need to approach this custom, you need to approach this ritual, that exorcism is the means by which we're brought into a saving relationship and it remain in an abiding relationship with Jesus, we are setting ourselves up for actual demonic influence. And what I mean by that is false doctrine. We're saying things about God and our relationship with him that simply aren't true. Now, We've made many illustrations on the show, and you can default to those. If you'd like more, feel free to follow through. And I think this suffices for the point. You gave Saul, however, as an example of someone who would have been possessed. And that's actually not a case for the Dominion or the Deliverance Ministries. Dominions are different. But of someone who's identified in Scripture, and we'll go into why exorcisms weren't being performed in a moment, but when it notes a troubling spirit from the Lord was given to Saul, and the only thing that calmed him down was David's singing, his uh, playing on the harp. That's how he got a place in Saul's court before the whole David and Goliath incident. Yeah, God's sovereignty is definitely at work there in the narrative. (laughs) Yeah, but what was interesting as well is it notes that this spiritual influence uh, with Saul and all the shenanigans that were involved there were, in fact, spiritual. And there's other influences, say, for instance, in the book of Second Kings with Micaiah, and he notes that the spirit that was influencing um, Ahab's prophets were also sent by God as an allowance of deception. 
And we see that at work in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But the point being made is this. I'm going all over the place. Wonder why I have notes on my sermons. I'll be all over the place unless I have a specific <laughs> goal in mind. Point being made is it's actually a fair case to make. Was Saul possessed? Well, that depends on whether or not he had a relationship with the Lord or not. Because yeah. noting, it, yeah. Yeah, and in Saul's case, like, and in Saul's case, it's an interesting case. And this is, I think, what you got to do and just make sure um, that you're doing what I'm going to tell you right now just to keep you on course. And that is every situation you got to take specifically, mm-hmm. you know, in it of itself. Um, I think what Sean's getting at is that if you blanket every situation... <laughs> In, with a with the same kind of idea, like you know, this is demon possession. Saul's demon possessed, and this other person's demon possessed, and you don't take them individually, then you you run into problems. Yeah. You know, you got to take every situation different and look at what the text says. In Saul's situation, it's an interesting one. You know, an evil spirit or an injurious spirit from the Lord comes upon Saul. And it's obviously God working in Saul's life and in King David's life, uh, who's going to be king anyway. And um, But it's interesting because the Spirit not only comes upon Saul, this injurious spirit, but also the Spirit leaves as well. Yeah, Saul in certain situations is able to prophesy, and it's actually a mocking proverb. It's not Saul even among the prophets. That's right. So there's times after this injurious spirits upon Saul where Saul has moments with the prophets in insane worship sessions. So, um, it, and the reason why I point that out is because if you flip over to like, like for instance, if you look at Ananias and Sapphira, yeah. a New Testament narrative in the historical book of Acts, chapter 5. There's an interesting statement there. Ananias and Sapphira seem to be part of the early church. They do something very deceptive and <clears throat> manipulative. And the Peter says to them, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And before he says that, he says, why has Satan filled your heart? Now, it's interesting. Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart? Some people would look at that if they already have kind of a constructed doctrine of demon possession. Or oppression. Or yeah. oppression. Then they would look at that and they would, they would now put whatever their, their thoughts are and they would blanket it onto that passage mm-hmm. and go, oh, Ananias and Sapphira are demon possessed or demon oppressed or whatever it is, Right. Peter just says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then there's this judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. That's all we get from that narrative, right? It's totally different from, say, the demon-possessed woman who Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, has to literally call her out and say, you in know, the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, one. yeah. You know, this whole, you know, get out of her kind of thing. Um, you look at that situation and you you read over that and you go, that that seems very clear that there was a demon possession going on. 
I mean, it, it says it in the text. In the same know. book by the same author, and yet <clears throat> sets up a completely different scenario of how Ananias and Sapphira were influenced by Satan and how this Philippian woman was influenced by Satan. Right, and I would just, I would just really caution everybody to go, hey, you know, where the text is silent, let's just remain silent. <clears throat> Right, you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, was Ananias and Sapphira demon oppressed, demon possessed? Doesn't say. It does not say. It just says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Meaning their lying was obviously a mm -hmm. working of Satan. It was, you know, it, it's like Jesus when he says to Peter, right? Get behind the Satan. You know, now, was Satan possessing? Peter, when Jesus says that, it, it was Jesus at the Last Supper possessed by the devil? We don't read that anywhere. It, it doesn't say that. Now, there was one of the disciples yeah. that Where specifically it, says Satan entered into him. That's right. So mm -hmm. we, have to, we have to see every mm -hmm. situation, let the text speak, and then just say what it says. <clears throat> so Saul's situation, much different. You know, so hopefully that helps a mm -hmm. little bit. Now, I think what um, um, what deliverance ministries are doing is they're basically taking, I think, a overall uh, theological position, a doctrinal position, and um, that that stems probably from their understanding of what happened in the garden and and uh, Satan's role in that. And, uh, and there is, I've read some of it, uh, some of people's uh, literature on, on this kind of uh, demonology kind of stuff. We've had to deal with it a lot. Yeah. And, um, but anyway, and then they kind of, kind of put all that information on every text that they're reading. Mm -hmm. So, um, but there are some churches that really, really stress mm -hmm. this uh, so much, where it almost mm. feels like you're talking about Satan, like more than you are talking about the Lord. As if, it, as if Satan were almost uh, omnipresent. Yeah, and Sean, um, I know you're looking at a scripture, but you know um, the idea that I know you wanted to get to is like the Old Testament. Why don't you see um, um, deliverance more, ministries, more examples like of a possession? Yeah, possession deliverance than New Testament. Real quick point uh, on the Ananias and Sapphira that people miss is that. They'll, they'll take that example, and there's only one other example that people take with the, with the idea that, okay, you're not possessed as a born-again Christian, you're being oppressed, and what's happening is, is you've got the Holy Spirit on one shoulder whispering godly things into you, into your mind, and then you have a demon whispering into your other ear things that Satan wants you to do, and you have to learn to discern, and if you give Satan a foothold by getting involved in pornography, watching bad movies, uh, doing any kind <laughs> it's of always, sin. It's always, it's always, the, it's always those. It's all, if you, any kind of sin. doesn't we'll say give, anything about pride. Right, no. right. It gives Satan a foothold, and now he's oppressing you. He's this demon has attached itself to you. Uh, you could even have a spirit attach itself to you from an inanimate object that has what they call a familiar spirit. Uh, something that uh, has not been cleansed. I yeah, remember family members were getting all the objects in the house because they were into collectibles, and these things were old. And they thought, well, maybe there's a spirit because the children are misbehaving. If the children are acting badly, maybe it's a demonic spirit causing them to do that. Not that the children are just disobedient. That could never happen because we're a godly family. 
So if I'm sinning, it, it, what, it, what ends up happening with these deliverance ministries is that if someone is struggling with an unrepentant sin, then, and, and because I'm a godly human being, then it must mean that I have a, a demonic foothold in my life, and I'm being oppressed, and I'm listening to this voice, this demonic voice that's putting ideas and these thoughts in my head, because I'm a Christian, I could never think about lust and cheating on my family or cheating on my taxes or being deceitful. I could never conceive of these things. In fact, neither did Ananias and Sapphira. Peter blamed Satan. But what they miss is if you keep reading on, Peter says to Ananias, why have you conceived of this deed in your own heart? Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts. So this idea that if I have a bad thought, if I struggle with certain sins, it's not me, it's the devil. It's the demonic realm Yeah, is a real foreign to Scripture. And I think Peter's using Satan almost metaphorically in the mm-hmm. sense that the satanic deceptiveness of the world yeah. has so influenced your thinking that you thought you could sell your land, present it to the apostles' feet, and kind of give the impression that it's the entire value of the land. Yeah. When he says, isn't it yours to do what you want? All you had to do is say, hey, we want to donate half of our profits from our land to the church. Yeah, good. Yeah, They would have been good. alive. And but they, they thought, well, we'll just kind of put it there and make it look like we gave it all. Yeah. And they're being very deceitful in that sense. And they had seen more miracles than we mm-hmm. have today, thus held to a higher standard and mm-hmm. resulting in higher consequences. Yeah, sometimes like the best way to decipher some of this too, if you're kind of, you know, you've been involved in these kind of ministries, like I would say just take take the logic, you know, the doctrinal logic that you're using and just extrapolate it through the, all the scriptures, all the characters. Mm-hmm. Did Abraham sin? Yes. You know, okay, so was he demon-possessed? Okay, let's go down the list. Okay, so let's, let's see, who else sinned? Gideon. Did, okay, was Gideon demon-possessed? You know, okay, let's go down the list some more, you know. You know and, and, and if you just take that logic and you just go, okay— because what you're saying, you see where the logic's going. Mm-hmm. Everybody's who sins is demon possessed. I mean, that's what you're getting at. That's what it ends up resulting in. Yeah. In fact, there was a, a popular author um, in the 80s and 90s named Neil Anderson published some books called. Uh, one of them was called The Bondage Breaker, and the other yeah. one was called Victory Over Darkness. And I think Scott. I think Pastor Scott was uh, was uh, a student or. Um, he, he he was in the he seminary. Atten- or- he attended one of the one of these seminars that oh, okay. Neil T. Anderson yeah. would, or Neil Anderson would uh, would do because mm-hmm. he would go into churches and do these mm-hmm. seminars. Uh, you know, where you go through these steps to free yourself from uh, demonic oppression. Yeah, and, oppression, not possession. Yes, he he was a very big proponent of the concept of oppression. He's not in you. He's right. On you, he's like right. kind of latched onto your right. leg, and everywhere you go, he's so just a Christian there whispering can't, a Christian can't be possessed, right. but the idea is that they could be oppressed. Yeah, and and in the open of the in the opening of the bondage breaker, later editions they removed it because they got flack for it. But in earlier editions of the bondage breaker, he said in order to have a good theology, you have to have a good psychology. And what was happening is he was basing his theology on his clinical psychology sessions with with patients, mm. where people were struggling, even to the point where he saw what he described as manifestations of demonic uh, entities. People were snapping in his 
sessions. And he thought, well, this has to be demonic. Why would this person go to a prostitute? That doesn't make any sense. Why would this married man with children who is a born-again Christian ever find himself in in, in with in a prostitute? Sin. In sin with a prostitute. <laughs> clearly, I can think of two. <laughs> he, he concluded, clearly this must be some yeah. form of demonic activity, yes. but I know that you can't be possessed, so it's got to be. And he created this whole... Yeah. This whole idea, based on his experience, rather than scripture. Yeah, uh, I know because uh, <clears throat> uh, I was uh, with the Andre Cole Ministry at the time with Campus Crusade, and and some of my fellow staff members, wh- they brought in Neil Anderson to Campus Crusade staff training, and they all walked out and they went, "I think we were just casting demons out of ourselves because <laughs> that's the yeah. whole steps to freedom the, that they would do in the seminar would be would culminate in." Getting rid of those demonic footholds, which essentially amounted to casting demons not out of, out from in, inside of you, but off of you. Casting demons off of you if you yeah. buy into the oppression and there, idea. There's, and there's some warnings in the New Testament about not being um, flippant about spirits. You know, not to be someone who just kind of uses, you know, like, oh, I'm going to get the demon. And the demons, you know, I'm going to you know, and demon this, demon that, you know, I, I was thinking maybe it was in the book of Jude or maybe it's the yeah. book of Second Speaking Peter. Speaking of all yeah, the dignitaries and getting involved in things that you have no business yeah, getting involved. Yeah, the yeah. archangel didn't even speak ill of Satan, uh, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So the idea that we can go around just kind of cursing and casting out Satan <laughs> yeah. and and to me, that's a little bit of a red flag. <laughs> you know? one of and the his big... point was false prophets need to be answered with the mm, word of God. Yeah. Your words yeah. mean nothing. Yeah, listen, Sean, why don't you uh, just walk through real quick why why there's a difference in the New Testament about like this emphasis on some of the or some of the narratives definitely more um, emphasizing demon possession. Well, and just to be brief, so we can get to more questions. Yeah. the answer as to why there's a difference is because there's no difference. The only point of emphasis that the New Testament makes is it identifies its origin by name, whereas in the New Old Testament you only see the results. Uh, if you want to know, like for instance, the times of the kings, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, that was just one book, the books of the kings. You get a lot of demonic influence, a lot of false doctrine being promoted at that time mm-hmm. in history when the kings, specifically in the north, but also eventually in the south every now and again, were buying into idol worship, the sacrifice of children, the compromising and the old, sometimes outright neglect of the laws of God, that is just as demonic as false doctrine mm-hmm. influenced as it would be in any other case in the New Testament. Now, there were instances where these guys had no relationship with God, and you know that they were just sometimes outright insane. If there's anyone in the Old Testament I think you could make a case for being possessed, Athaliah for sure, and Jezebel probably. We can get like the 70-80% range. <laughs> but if we're talking about the idea of people of God just being influenced by false doctrine, that's likewise demonic, not a result of possession, but noting a neglect of your relationship with God brings you into deeper fellowship with yourself, yeah. and the enemy is more than happy to use that. Yeah. When we see people, again, possessed in the New Testament, Adrian, you brought this up some time ago, it was because God was doing a more direct spiritual push. And I can imagine that any war is going to take place on two fronts. The enemy also having a more direct hand is probably why you see this kind of influence taking place. But note that the time of Jesus, 
wasn't the introduction of exorcisms. There were Jewish practices that have been in existence legitimately, by the way, for hundreds of years up until that point, and we see them at work in the Book of Acts. We could note as well the interesting details that are given to us about you know, some of the uh, apocryphal sources about Elijah, and I don't give them any credence, but the point being made is this. Exorcism's nothing new. The purpose of the Bible isn't to teach you exorcism. It's to identify the solution rather than to examine the problem. Yeah, and, and I would the last thing I would say is that the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 that God also testified to um, the work of Jesus Christ and his apostles by various signs and miracles and wonders, you know, gifts of the Holy Spirit, and that that why you see maybe such an uptick, if you will, on, um, you know, exorcisms, you know, is because the work of Christ is to set the captives free. Um, how would they know he's the Christ? He's the Messiah. He was going to do amazing works. And so you see in the book, the writer of Hebrews is saying there's a confirmation that this is a confirmation that the gospel is true. It's through these amazing things that are taking place, you know? So, you know, we have to understand that the time of Jesus and his followers, it was a special time. It was in a, in a, in a time in history. There's some critical messianic purposes for why uh, him demonstrating his deity That's right. and his authority over the demonic, it was essential. So there is, I, I, Sean had it right, there's no difference, it's just that there is uh, instances where Jesus was messianically demonstrating his authority over the spirit world. Yeah, the Son of God was here, you know. Yeah. I and like First John. Him. Did you quote First John five or did I? Two and four, not five. Yeah. So First John five is another one of my favorite go tos on this subject. Yeah. He who is born of God does not sin. And my understanding from the tense is that it's he does not continue in habitual, mm-hmm. continuous sin, like the book's talking about. Right, so he like, was... Well, like what the book's... <laughs> We're in trouble if it's just <laughs> yeah. any sin, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He who is born of God does not sin because he who is begotten of God, that is referring to the begotten one, the Son, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, keeps him, and? and the evil one does not touch him. I used to jokingly say that passage you quoted, greater is he who is in the world than he who is... I mean, greater is he who is in me than he who is... Also in me, <laughs> and of course that's not what the passage no. says. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Good Great. stuff. Well, we have a, a real quick, interesting question back to the Old Testament. Um, why was Solomon chosen as the um, the to, successor to, 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 David. to succeed the throne? Rather than one of other David, one of the other sons of David. Yeah, uh, short answer, read 1 Kings 1 through 3. That discusses Solomon's rise to power. David specifically singles Solomon out. But, of course, anyone could take the throne, God not recognize it. The simple answer is because, like his father before him, he had the heart that God could use. You look at uh, the other individuals who were left after the Absalom incident, like Adonijah, and you know that he, you know, deliberately going out of his way to seek out Philistine mercenaries to assassinate Solomon after warning him, don't try it, and then being executed, other people trying to stage a political coup and then being held accountable for it. 
all these things and noting that Solomon's sons, for the most part, one exception, were just in it for power. Solomon, which we see in chapter 3, was the kind of man who wanted to rule God's people properly. And just like we saw with the reason David was chosen, it wasn't because he was the greatest of his family or he had this special je ne sais quoi, as the French say. It was because he wanted God's heart. Now, no, it doesn't mean that he was perfect. You can tell by his uh, marital shenanigans that he definitely had some things to work out. But when it came to the kind of person he would be as a representative of God to his people, he would be the one to do the job the way God intended, that is, as a king, a representative of God politically. So that's the reason why he was chosen. God looks at the heart, man looks at the outward appearance. Adonijah and the other sons of Solomon either stepped back properly or tried to interfere and lost their heads for it. And the point being made is just that. David specifically singles him out prayerfully and under inspiration of the Holy Spirit because this is the guy God wanted, and that's what matters. Yeah, and you can, if you want to see a little proof of what Sean's saying, just follow up by going to 1 Kings chapter 9, which is very cool, because there the Lord Yahweh speaks to Solomon in that chapter. And uh, it's specifically from Yahweh to Solomon, um, saying, hey, I've heard your prayer, the prayer and the plea that you have made before me. And this is the dedication of the temple. Solomon had a heart for God. He had a heart for the temple of God, the place of God, the mm-hmm. meeting of God, you know, and the promise to Solomon is that, you know, um, that I'll be with you. You know, you walk in my ways, man, I'm going to be with you. I mean, God puts his own stamp, if you will, on Solomon, um, you know, because the kings are, oh, I mean, the who's going to be king is always kind of up for grabs in these narratives, it feels like. But God here puts a stamp on Solomon and says, and, and where did Solomon get the idea of, you know, building a temple to the Lord. Well, he got it from his old man. Hmm. You know, he got it from his dad. He wanted to, but God said, or Nathan told him, God said that uh, that'd be ironic. Yeah. <laughs> I so, don't do it. You're so a man So obviously it was something in Solomon that David saw a heart after God. And Solomon wanted to hmm. follow in his dad's footsteps and goes, man, I want to I wanna glorify God. And this section... I read it. I mean, the dedication of the temple is quite uh, an interesting hmm. chapter, you know? Wow. So, yeah. Uh, side note, related to this question, but uh, they weren't supposed to have a king, in a sense. It was supposed to be uh, sort of like the judges. Yeah. And the, then the Israelites the demanded a king. Yep. Give us a king, and they got Saul. Uh, but what would have happened had they not made that demand? Do you think there would still be... Or was that just sort of God's foreknowledge of of how things would turn out and that they would have to have a kingly succession? And since they, they had these concepts and these ideas, and it was all part of the Israelite history. Well, I think that, that uh, God put a special provision in the law for kings to obey when you disobey me <clears throat> and have a king. I think the best way to look at it isn't in hypotheticals, but to say what man intends for evil, God uses for good. The mm-hmm. kings served one purpose and one purpose alone, to create an office the Messiah mm-hmm. would ultimately occupy Makes forever. Sense. But it is correct that originally God did not yeah. de- decree them having a king, but they said, "I want we want a king like the other nations. And, and he permitted it at a time, which is mm-hmm. why Samuel was the judge that introduced the kings, and the books mm-hmm. of Samuel are emphasized as the books of the kings simultaneously. But the point being made is just that Jesus is the mm-hmm. king, God is the king, and he would step in eventually. Interesting. 
another question here on the end times and the Antichrist. Is it possible Sean that the Stewart. This is uh, from Lucas. Is it could the Antichrist be sort of an alien, not an actual alien, but would a worldwide deception of oh there are aliens they exist, but actually it's all a demonic lie, and that's the Antichrist acting. Is there any biblical basis for some of these ideas? That the Antichrist wouldn't be human, that he'd be a spiritual or some otherworldly entity in origin. I've heard them uh, real quick because we're running low on time. There are four general views people have on the end times. I'll mention three for the sake of time. There's preterists who believe that the majority of the end times are fulfilled in the past. Therefore, there's no literal Antichrist. It was already just someone who was evil and did evil things. Uh, the second view is that of a futurist. That's a position that we take, that the end times are literal events that will take place in the future. And then there are just symbolists. Uh, there's a word for it, but just they, there are no literal applications of the end times. These are just symbolic descriptions of evil at work in the world. Um, we take the second position, obviously, and why you clarified you do as well or Lucas, rather, excuse me. Um, when we're talking about this, though, a preterist would take the position that, of course, the Antichrist would be a man, but they'd say the prophecies predicting him, like Daniel uh, 8 through 11, for instance, was just and only Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek tyrant who fulfilled and became associated with the origins of Hanukkah. The futurist position has a lot of, obviously, prophecies about this Antichrist, and there's other names for him. Daniel calls him the cruel king of the north in chapters 9 through 11. We uh, see him referred to as the son of perdition in the gospel accounts. We see him referred to as the Assyrian in Zechariah and some of the minor prophets. We see him referred to as the beast from the sea in the book of Revelation chapter 13. But And, uh, of course, the Antichrist in 1 John chapter 4. But when we're talking about this figure, it's always associated with the man, a man coming. Read this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The coming of the lawless one is according to not is the workings of Satan. Obviously, he's going to be a lot in line with the nature of his father, and we can see that as just the nature of evil. This is someone who Satan's going to use more prominently, but no more than the average politician. Note the joke. The point being made, though, is this. If we're going to get evidence in the text, and you can mention some maybe specifically at a future time, of the Antichrist being spiritual in origin, there's always a distinction made between him and his source material, that is the enemy. The dragon isn't the beast from the sea, but he comes bearing all authority from the dragon, Revelation 13 tells us. There's also a distinction between him and the false prophet. If you take the futurist position, then you have to note, this sounds like a man who's going to be used by Satan, and especially more directly during the second half of what we call the tribulation. Yeah, and I would just <clears throat> I would just say this, is that... Um, you know, Jesus talked about false prophets, and I don't think he was referring to, like, some kind of alien or anything. Um, you know, and, and I don't—I'm saying that in all seriousness. Like, Jesus, uh, you know, when he talked about there will be many false prophets in the latter days, the Antichrist is the epiphany uh, or— The paragon, the ultimate the, of that. The ultimate of the—that's why we say, you know, Antichrist— it is, it is um, someone who's instead of or against in, Christ. Yeah, instead of or against Jesus. It's 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 it, Jesus came in the flesh, 
And so it would be, I think, not a very good parallel to think of the Antichrist as something totally different from Jesus. Like as in, Jesus had a flesh and body, you know? So it would be weird if the, like, if the, if, if the Antichrist was an alien, you know, Jesus wasn't an alien, you know? Um, you know, people are going to be deceived by the, this anti-Messiah, this false Messiah. So Jesus was the real Messiah, and he had flesh and bones. So to me, like, you know, the false, the false Christ is going to have flesh too. I don't see anywhere where, where it would be something totally <clears throat> of a different nature. And you know. when John makes the point in the passage that mentions him as Antichrist, he says, many Antichrists, little mm-hmm. a, have come. Yeah. But you aren't of that sort. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so Antichrist, and when John's speaking in First John in his epistle, is he talking about something that is of different nature than Christ? No, you're speaking of people coming out of the church of and people. showing they were against Christ right, the whole of people. time. people, flesh and bone people. I'm only familiar with one reference to aliens in the Bible, and that is the church. <laughs> we oh, are to be aliens. in the world, yeah. but not of it. We are aliens here. We're just visitors temporarily waiting for our permanent abode. Yeah. yeah. Alien just means foreigner. We're exactly. a separate allegiance. <laughs> yeah. It's probably important that we don't take uh, popular, superstitious, cultural ideas, such as the existence of aliens, and then suppose that the enemy will use these ideas in some sort of uh, facade or deception to convince the world that aliens are real and it's just the Antichrist pretending. Uh, It's probably good to just stick to the text and how it states. Yeah, and I think what we've seen seen over the last, you know, few years is that we definitely love to worship people. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you again tomorrow. Please join us. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.